1989, when she was program coordinator at PS1 in Queens, R.H. Quaitman organized the first U.S. museum show of Hilma af Klint, the reclusive Swedish pioneer of abstract painting, whose occult-inspired later works had, according to her wishes, remained hidden for many years after her death in 1944. As a coda to the major exhibition at the Guggenheim, Hilma af Klint, Paintings for the Future, a solo exhibition of Quaitman is presented in the top ramp of Lloyd Wright's Spiral. Her show is subtitled Plus Times, Chapter 34. The Plus Times cites the code used by Af Klint in her notebooks to denote works that were to remain secret, while Chapter 34 reflects Quaitman's practice since 2008 of organizing her output into chapters, each marking a new interaction with a specific space or thematic. In wall text, Quaitman speaks about her modes of response to Af Klint. All I could do was follow dumbly and sometimes simply copy as best I could her evidence. But in what direction? Toward magical thinking? No. Religious faith? Have none. Geometric diagrams? Always. Process? It happened. Architecture? Unavoidably. Trigonometry? If I could. Sexuality? It's obvious. Romance? Yes. Drama? There seems to be a beginning and an end. In addition to her place on the ramp, Quaitman's show includes a vitrine of source materials in the I. Simon reading room. The Chimney is a standalone post-industrial space on Morgan Avenue in Bushwick that has been staging ambitious installation projects since 2015 under the direction of founders Clara Darrison and Jennifer Hoodrooge. This is the review panel's first visit to this unusual venue. Iranian-born, Brooklyn-based, Yale MFA graduate Shahrazad Changalvai has produced a piece titled Absentia in Effigy. This is a time-based work in which a shallow, slightly off-rectangular reservoir receives a stream of printouts via a slide from a printer that sits atop a cast ladder. The images are from news and protest sites from her native Iran. As the artist told an interviewer from Women's Wear Daily, it may look at the very beginning that it's very authoritarian. It's sitting on the top doing this carelessly, but it has a humour. It's sitting on the top, but it's not quite on the top, she continues. And, you know, even that doesn't have the full control. Even that is not the character that's sending all this. I've been thinking a lot about agency and control. The computer, which is sending the prints, we don't see it. We know it's probably there. I mean, it is there. I'm not hiding it that much. One thing the artist didn't control was the weather. At the time of viewing this piece last weekend, the pool and its accumulated images were frozen. Great. Well, we have a strict rule at the review panel it has to be a recent body of work by a living artist. And that is the reason that we spend more time in commercial galleries and non-profit spaces than we do at um, great museums, which usually deal with either the dead or with um, retrospectives uh, of uh, the artists that they're looking at. So, um, uh, 
it's a rather nice excuse to look at an artist who died half a century ago uh, to do so on the coattails of a leading contemporary artist, um, Rebecca Quaitman, um, uh, with, with her um, CODA exhibition. Uh, it's, in fact, I think, well-nigh impossible, really, to speak about Quaitman's show without acknowledging its source and its venue. Um, uh, the extraordinary revelatory, in many senses of the word, um, mystical work of, uh, of Hilma af Klint. Um, and, and in a funny way, because of Klint's, af Klint's stipulation uh, that her work remain under wraps until the world was presumably spiritually enlightened, as we all are now, to be able to, <laughs> to look at these works without misinterpreting these um, uh, astral communications. Um, in a funny way, um, Af Klint is a contemporary artist. Um, it, it, as somebody who's only emerged at a certain moment, one could argue. Um, what do we think about a CODA exhibition of this nature. There have been various moves by museums. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Musée d'Orsay in Paris. It has a whole program. Whenever they're doing a historic show, they, they throw in some contemporary art and bang in the middle of the show just to show how hip they, the curators, are, I think. But, but, also, but that's a skeptical view. The more uh, enlightened view probably is that it, it, it shows the contemporaneity of historical material to show how vital it is in the minds and the hearts of uh, living artists. Is that, is that what's happening here? Um, before we get into Quaitman and deciding what we think of, of her show and her work, I'd, I'd like to know what we think of the, the curatorial intervention of the, the Guggenheim in, in pairing these shows in this way. Anybody have strong feelings or responses on that? Um, why don't I start with you, Leanne? Sure. Um, I thought it was a really nice um, extension, a sort of um, metaphor, a reflection for Clint, um, you know, particularly someone we, that we haven't seen a lot of that work. We don't know a whole lot about, um, you know, her practice or the things that she was thinking about as she was working. And I felt like, you know, um, Quaitman sort of, the, well, the way that I took it, her approach was kind of um, starting from in that same sort of experimental um, sort of sketches. And then, you know, as you go down the ramp, you know, things become more saturated, the colors and um, things sort of become more solid or um, more fully formed. And I felt like that was a really nice um, reflection or metaphor for the, the show that the Guggenheim designed for Clint. Yeah. And now uh, Leanne's description of uh, starting at the top, working her way down, is, um, um, is, is, is significant in itself because um, many of us do that uh, just out of uh, physical comfort, take the elevator to the top and work down our way down. And we'll, if, if we were allowed to, we'd probably use a skateboard or something. But um, <laughs> the... the, the uh, the intention, obviously, is it, you start at the bottom and work your way up. Um, and, um, but but it's, that seems to be a nice metaphor, in a way, for reading the past through the present. D 
do you do you feel that um, by by introducing Quaitman, there's a sense of accentuating the the contemporary relevance of what would otherwise seem actually quite a historical curio in uh, Ufclint, Nancy. Me. Um, well, first, I, I, sh I feel I should say that it, it was Rebecca's intention that we all do start at the top. So there was a little bit of a, um, I don't, I think struggle is probably too strong a word, um, but there was an interesting dialogue within the museum about the positioning of um, her work in relationship to F. Clint's, which I think is telling. Um, she has her artist statement, which you um, read from in, in the video, where she would like you to begin, where she would like us to start the exhibition at the top. And of course, the curators of the Ufclint and Rebecca Quaitman show have their statement at the bottom of that ramp. So <laughs> there's an interesting dialogue that's set up right there, and I think that suggests something of the conceptual relationship between um, Rebecca Quaitman's work and, and Off Clint's work. Um, it, you know, I, I think it's not, I think even the term coda um, introduces a relationship that is, you know, interesting, but maybe not quite the relationship um, that Rebecca intended for her work. Although she's done a tremendous amount of research into um, Af Clint, and as you noted, um, basically introduced Af Clint to, um, to the American audience in, in the late 1980s when she was working at, at PS1. Um, so it's you know it's not it, it's not quite the, the the kind of situation where an artist is kind of deposited, you know, into the midst of or at the, you know, termination of a historical show, but is meant to be a much more um, integrated um, response. And and her, Rebecca's work was done um, rather recently, mm. um, all in a direct um, dialogue with the work that that we see on the walls of, of, of Ofklins. Oh, yeah, I think there's no question. Well, there is no question. Uh, this work was produced for this exhibition. Um, right. it, it is site-specific and time-specific and uh, theme-specific. Um, and and it, it takes, it extrapolates, doesn't it, from one particular notebook of um, mm -hmm. Arf Klintz. Um, um, now, uh, Jonathan, but it, um, Quaitman's work is, is it, she organizes it ostensibly into chapters. Each chapter extrapolates from a particular body of work historically or is involved with some theme. Um, and um, uh, she is a very, there's no question about it, a very scholarly kind of artist. Um, it, it's it's um, um, the, the, whole, the whole texture of what she does, her projects, uh, conceptual in, in different uh, senses of the word. Um, uh, what do you feel, do, do you feel her, how would you characterize her relationship to, well, how would you characterize our experience of Af Klimt with her as a filter? Well, I was going to, can I first respond to the thing you said earlier, which is when you put, you know, a contemporary artist uh, in the midst of a historical show. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about making it so specific with someone like Quaitman, who's been working out of, of Klimt, 
Because so often you go to an exhibition and an artist is, um, you know, you see all of the influences and things that are in the work, but they're not specifically removed for you to talk about them. So, you know, I mean, later we'll talk about Dana Schutz. There's a zillion art historical references that are fantastic, but they're not, you know, museum curated in that way. So mm. I thought this was really interesting. And I did also start at the top which was a mistake. I hadn't realized that that was the way um, Rebecca Quaitman wanted it. But what I also, the specific question you're asking me because you think I write, um, uh, <laughs> is that I, what, what did strike me tremendously is going from bay to bay because the pacing mm. of, the, of the Quaitman work I found remarkable. It was one of my favorite things. The other thing I loved was that she deconstructed the awful Guggenheim. You know, now, what I mean by awful is I love the Guggenheim. And as you said, it would be a great roller rink or skateboarding thing. But I always feel like Frank Lloyd Wright designed that place so no artist could take away from <laughs> his structure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think what Quaitman did was by flattening those paintings into the bays, having those angles that she did, you know, did something to change my experience of, of the museum. And when I, and then I had to, as the, another question you asked is that the work then takes on a narrative very specifically <coughs> and going into that reading room and mm -hmm. looking at the research and seeing that she had copied, actually copied paintings from Af Klimt, to me felt like this incredible, you know, I mean, art students nowadays don't do that and they didn't even do it when I was an art student. Mm. But later as an artist, I did that. I Conscribing, copied, yes. Yeah, I copied artists' work and I discovered amazing sort of things when you do that. Mm. And so I thought the affinity of seeing the Quaitman work first and then walking down into Afklimp kind of informed me in this contemporary way of looking at this historical work that I would not have necessarily thought about, mm. you know, yeah. visually and in a narrative way. So. Well, she talks quite a lot about, Rebecca does, about, um, about her work in, in literary terms that, you know, the, the work all being organized under these sort of biblia bibliophilic um, headings and each exhibition being chapter and so on. And um, she brings that out in F. Clint's work as well, you know, the, the extent to which we talk about F. Clint's work as related to, um, to the imagery of diagrams, to, you know, the sort of presentation of scientific information um, in connection with spiritual information, which is an odd mix. Um, and, and it is, you know, kind of that hybrid that I think is so speaking to, um, to our time, to audiences today. But I, you know, I think another thing to the, you know, to this point about um, her connection, Rebecca's connection to the, um, to the building, to um, Wright's building, is that um, she, she did research on that as well and open it up in ways that, you know, I've I heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, the work is really so dry and, you know, it's so academic. And people do say that about Quaitman's work. It, you know, I know, you know, that it's just enormously intelligent, but it's just, you know, it's just really too hermetic. But one thing that came out very vividly in the video that I think not that many people who um, went to the show God is that those circle and a square paintings that are in the exact center of each bay um, are all level. 
with respect to, you know, sea level. But they appear to rise um, because you're walking on this slope. Um, so that if you're, you know, if you're shooting a video, you see that, um, it, you know, this effect of the moon rising is actually, a, you know, a dead level. And it's a wonderful, I think, little, you know, visual epiphany when you're there to have that experience. And I think she did that in a lot of ways to, you know, she asked the museum to open up those circular skylights um, that are usually not open, you know, mostly for conservation reasons. Um, and she pulled out those circular um, stool things, pieces of furniture, right things. Mm. Um, so, you know, she really did a lot of work to make people enjoy um, the experience of being in the museum, which I agree with you, Jonathan, is a, um, is a really tough... And that gives a very satisfying kind of... It, I, I can understand some of your colleagues detracting from the sense of its being a little too clever or academic or but I, but to me it gives it great texture um that that um that this multi-layeredness and maybe even a sort of unexpected uh commonalities so the very fact by the way also that um um Af Klint in conceiving of a, a temple uh, for which her her art would would serve um thought that a spiral would be the perfect setting for it. I wonder, therefore, if the Guggenheim has ever uh, staged an exhibition more, uh, actually more intrinsically appropriate mm -hmm. to its, uh, also because of the kind of new religious movement, um, kind of wacky occultism of Frank Lloyd Wright, also relating to uh, theosophy and anthroposophy and um, uh, uh, Af Klint's interests. Um, but, but in a way, um, it's also, uh, it's interesting that Quaitman is insistently, well, a, a secularist, um, um, but therefore encouraging us to understand, um, to, to say, to 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 entertain the notion that Af Klint, um, her information shouldn't be consigned, confined, or consigned. Either will do. To to. Uh, a mystical or an occult realm. Does that? Uh, I think that's maybe where um, the conceptualism of Quaitman um, uh, is 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 useful to the packaging of um, of Clint as not just being a wacky outsider out <laughs> occultist. Mm -hmm. um, not that there's anything wrong with the occult, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, you know Hilary Bay, who is the essentially the founder of the of the museum, or certainly organized the collection um, for Solomon Guggenheim, uh, um, was a follower of Blavatsky, as um, as was um, Kandinsky, Kandinsky and Mondrian, and a whole raft of mm -hmm. um, early twentieth century modernists. There was a great deal of credence in in what was not then considered, you know, just a kind of flaky, new agey um, spiritual system. On the other hand, Af Klint herself, um, although she did the first part of um, the work in the nineteen sort of seven to ten period, that may not be right. Um, said that she was working um, under the guidance of um, of spirits that she contacted mm. in the seances. After that point, um, 
dispense with them. They, you know, she had enough, mm-hmm. and um, and the work really changes. And I think I, I don't know whether um, the rest of you have had this experience, but I think it gains um, it gains a certain kind of authority and strength when she strikes out on her own. Yeah, not reliant on those. Um, um, what are they called? Spiritual guides. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, um, but but I think actually what's also kind of an, an interesting commonality between um, Quaitman and Af Klint is, is the important, is the kind of the recycling within Af Klint and the reinterpretation of her own works. These notebooks in which she has a black and white reproduction of one of her own paintings and then a watercolour interpretation of that painting, often actually deviating from the, from the original, um, has a kind of conceptual layeredness uh, and interest in the simulacrum, which maybe relates also to um, Quaitman's own uh, project. And Quaitman's relationship, it becomes a sort of golden section between Klimt internally and then Quaitman to Klimt um, the, these 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 relations, but also good to think that, I mean, whatever we may think of artists being in in contact with uh, avatars, and um, um, but that that actually the scientism of theosophy and then anthroposophy were what made them very late nineteenth, early twentieth century religious movements. That these they were not just um, they're not just sort of hippies before the day. They they were they were people who actually thought were actually motivated by science as much as by religion. The, the, the atom, the uh, uh, magnetism, uh, X-rays, all those things were sort of basically impacting also a sense of universal knowledge, um, inter- interact integration of different forms, and that seems to actually also relate to the um, the process of Quaitman. But all these thoughts we're having are very much outside of actual objects, aren't they? Did, what sort of what sort of uh, rapport did, were we able to establish with the actual paintings, regardless of how they're hung, regardless of how they relate, regardless of what they mean? Um, are, the, are, are her works, in a, at the end of the day, just kind of counters or um, um, sort of fuse, just plugs or something within a bigger system, or do they really, am I asking the old-fashioned formless question that is, can be applied to almost any conceptual art, but um, where do we really stand in relation to the kind of experience we have when we're admiring, if we are admiring, individual paintings? Uh, Jonathan? Well, uh, you know, it's funny be, <clears throat> that um, what Nancy said, when, when I was going around to galleries for these shows, you know, people somehow, well, they'd already heard the list of what <laughs> shows were going to be discussed. And I can't tell you how many painters came up to me and said, dying to hear what you're going to be able to say about <laughs> And really, I mean, it was, um, but what I, I found, you know, and so somehow, you know, that little voice tucks into your head and it either makes you not receptive to the work or you're ready to prove mm-hmm. them wrong. But mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, I thought the v- variation in what you're saying, I mean, some of the paintings are, let's just 
talk away from all the, you know, the, the coding and the conceptualism are really beautiful. And, you know, that, that stop you in your tracks and also the variation in that work, mm-hmm. and which is a kind of scientific, you could say, or personal exploration of this other artist's work still manifests itself in really quite beautiful paintings. I think I thought very frequently as you're going through, you know, there were, there was the twofold way that I think we often see things, which is you're walking and you're particularly at the Guggenheim because you see things across the way and the perfect viewing sort of right in the middle of the pit. But, you know, so you see these things that are dancing between those bays and then you go in and you do get stopped by, you know, just the sort of totemic beauty of some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they brought up, I thought, for me, you know, some some paintings I'd thought about and, and thought about differently. Uh, but, you know, I thought that the, the way Quaitman went from the very reductive, simplistic sort of, even you could say the X and O that Af Klimt used, to really embell- gaudy embellishment, you know, with <clears throat> glitter mm-hmm. and stuff, and still keeping this kind of formal logic that came out of this other artist, I thought was sort of amazing and great. You know, I could never have gone that, made that leap. So I really, you know, when you ask that question, I'd say, yeah, I'll take that one. Do you know? <laughs> so what do you think, Leanne? Um, I agree with you. I thought they were, <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I was really moved by them. I, you know, I think, um, I think the thing that really um, was important for me was that, you know, as you're saying, um, you know, Af Klimt had this moment where she was sort of, you know, exploring the occult and all that sort of thing. And that was reflected in the work that she was making. And then we have a contemporary person who um, is very much, you know, looking at sort of rational, scientific kinds of things, but yet, you know, that's sort of where they meet, you know, the images that they, um, that are in conversation with each other in this show. And, you know, I think as I was walking through and looking at the Quaitman works, it was just sort of a fun, um, you know, exercise in a sense of like looking at the variation and sort of seeing the detail and sort of seeing the idea as you're moving along, you know, seeing that develop, you know, noticing a bit of color around um, one of the circles or sort of, you know, the layers of things, the different material um, differences that you could see in them. And it was really, it was really moving for me. I thought they were beautiful as well. You know, but I, I, I do this thing, and I think it's because I do come out of a kind of formalist art training, but I, I often do this thing, and I did it in this show, which is I try to see the work without any of the writing or any of the verbiage um, to see and then read it mm-hmm. and then see what, you know, what I'm getting from that. And I thought Quaitman's distillation of many of those ideas was very clear so mm. that you got these ideas of totems and icons and sexual references that, that I then could apply to Af Klimt without reading all of those things. Yes. Af Klimt becomes very Baroque. You know, so, mm. but all of that stuff is there in a kind of full-blown, glorious way, particularly when you get to the bottom of the, mm-hmm. you know, the big room. But I thought that Quaitman made me, you know, in a way that work 
kind of fine-tuned my eye and my brain to see those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I think perhaps the artists who didn't like it, you know, often we're looking for specific things or we bring our, you know, I don't know. I mean, and we're not giving themselves to that what it was that that artist was trying to explore and show us. Well, I, you know, I, we're looking at three painters this evening, which is mm. maybe that's a little unusual. And of course, they, they could hardly be three more different painters. Um, but I think, you know, just making that kind of crude comparison um, ac across, you know, the sort of generational spectrum there and um, a spectrum in terms of content and approach, I, you know, there, you know, I think that um, Quaitman can definitely hold her own in terms of just the care that she um, gives to the surface. And she's working with small surfaces. It's intimate work. And, you know, there, I mean, you've both made, I think, beautiful um, descriptions of them. They're, you know, they have a delicacy and a kind of opalescence and a variety. And, you know, they incorporate all this stuff that, you know, just as Jonathan, as you say, we, we really don't need to know. Mm. And of course, you know, the artist herself would say, you know, sure, there's a lot of information in here and, you know, it's available if you want it. Um, but really, it's about a, a visual experience, which I think is, you know, pretty accessible. It's delicate um, and you have to give it some time. But it is interesting that where Af Klint had to go to her astral guides uh, to start, um, or at least have that rationale for how she went where she went, in a funny way, Af Klint is the astral guide for uh, Quaitman, uh, because without, uh, because if you think of each of her chapters as being a, a completely different body of work, and that's that's where I think. Um, the kind of painter whose whose work is always coming out of their own last body of work mm -hmm. would um, get suspicious of the much more cerebral approach, a but much I don't... more strategic approach of an artist who's really starting something quite fresh with each chapter. Um, although, of course, you can always tell a Quaitman, regardless of what chapter it's from. But um, uh, that that's in a way uh, a pro there's a sort of, there's a program there, isn't there? In, in Rebecca Quaitman's work. It, it, yes. It, well, not yeah. a program in the sense that she's simply ext extracting elements from Af Klint's work and, and putting it through the Rebecca no, no, Quaitman filter. No, not at all, but, but, but there is... Um, There's it, a whole... What, it gives her the structure to know that she is it almost... I, th I see her work as almost archaeological in a way. You know, I think that's something that every artist does and that she just puts it a little more front and center, is more honest about it um, than some other artists are, that all um, artwork, in a sense, is a research project and all artwork is a social project. You um, bring in the um, information you need from your friends, from your family, in her case, um, from a wide circle of friends that she's been um, involved with intellectually and, and, you know, artistically since the beginning of her career. And, you know, they're very fixed parts of her vocabulary that are absolutely recognizable. And she's always interested in the relationship among works and how they're hung in relationship to each other. She's interested in the sides of things and how one painting can sort of direct you to the next so that you read across them. She's interested in the fact that, you know, 
you see a lot of work sideways. That's something that like really grabs her interest. So, you know, she talks about the profile of her work and she brings, she always paints on laminated wood. So she brings that edge into the body of the painting. You know, there's a whole range of stuff, uh, you know, much of which refers very directly to books, you know, and to the business of thinking in literary terms. She's a reader, um, many artists are readers. Um, while being really grounded in the visual business of making paintings. So I don't think it's just a you know a question of like doing yeah. research and No, no, it's not. Afklins. It's 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 Pardon a question me. of a springboard and then for the viewer an apparatus, a framing device. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I agree that in the in between those two things there's a great deal for delectation. Um, uh, and also the, the restraint in, in there, there is color, but it's often a kind of muted, steely grays and, and mm -hmm. or a little bit of earth tone. But mostly it's um, uh, a near mono, she, she's near to black or, and or white or cream. Um, and uh, that comes as a kind of, I don't know if it's a palette cleanser or an index to the sumptuous color of um, Af Klimt that if you follow the spiral the right way, you will have um, uh, seen already. So panelists, uh, we'll, we'll come back to uh, Quaitman when, when our audience comes in and uh, briefly, but uh, let us um, now turn our attention uh, to Shahrazad uh, Changlavai um, um, and, and her, her installation um, at uh, the chimney. Um, I wonder what's really going on with her um, research. Let's, uh, let's see what we can make of this. Uh, we've all noted, I think, that we got there on a very cold day and the, 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 the <laughs> pond had frozen. Um, perhaps that's a bit like uh, uh, the bride strip bear in, in Man Ray's uh, loft getting um, smashed and dusty and adding uh, a new layer of meaning to uh, Duchamp's um, unintended uh, large glass. So um, what can we really, what can we, what, what, what sort of experience did we have? Um, Jonathan, can I start with you? Okay. Um, it was not frozen when I was there. Ah. But what I thought was interesting was that it was static for mm. a piece that used, you know, sort of a low-tech technology of shooting these images into the water the water was basically static i mean the image i mean if you well there's different ways i was looking at it i mean when i was there the first way i actually saw it in my head was that the sculpture was a two-dimensional plane and that these images and fragments in the water set this thing up as a painting mm -hmm. to me but i'm always interested in that it's something i do all the time i flatten things in my head so you know when a picture was suddenly ejected from this thing and went down. You had talked about also about the protests and the language and Farsi that's on these things, most of which you can't see. Mm. So what you, for me, I would say mostly what I see is this poetic pool of fragmentation that I start to imbue with my own thoughts in a certain way. 
you know, because I'm not, and even if I, you, one goes really close to them, basically they're either floating, suspended, or drowning, mm. you know, so it sets up a kind of, kind of poetic dance, but it's all very slow, mm. you know, very <laughs> slow. I mean, you're not having those pictures shoot out of, they're coming, I think, every 15 minutes, you know, and, um, more interesting to me was that, in fact, the person at the gallery said last week it was frozen and um, and showed pictures, showed us pictures of how it looked frozen, but it didn't look particularly different mm. to me. Maybe it would if, as you said, if it had refractions and cracks and mm. like like mm. like the bride. But um, I, I tended to see it more two dimensionally. You know, this this sort of water garden seemed very flat which fascinated me, you know? Mm. Yeah. Did, did, <laughs> the, did, these, did the staticness um, strike you, Nancy? What, what was your... F- <laughs> um, you know, I'm a little hesitant to um, go too far down the road of, like, it being um, a frozen moment. Um, because she's a young artist, and I mm. think she's full of potential, and... Um, I, I don't feel I saw it, you know, frankly. I mean, I, and I was, I, I stayed as long as I could. It, it, was, it was frozen when I was there, and I, you know, I peered and peered, and just as Jonathan says, there, there really wasn't that much to see. And, you know, I, I checked out a couple of videos online just to, um, because I understood that, you know, some of the images that were coming down the shoot um, were from, were stills from, from videos that she's made, and, um, they, you know, the videos were were really, f- again, like full of interest, but not, you know, I one of the one of the ones that I saw, she was talking about um, being in school and um, her, you know, s- one of her fellow students encouraging her to go to Home Depot, and you know, she just walked into Home Depot, and this is, you know, the experience of someone who's new to. Depot and just you know being absolutely overwhelmed and buying two hundred and forty dollars worth of stuff, not a single penny's worth of which she used in her you know two years at Yale, um, and then you know she made a comparison between that and a hundred times as much that she owes um, in in student loans to um, to her school and you know and and that her you know her faculty kept saying well follow your interests and she says on this videotape I don't know what my interests are yet. And, you know, I thought that bewilderment was kind of poignant and um, it was it was a nicely put together video and it was candid and it was it was, you know, both kind of passionate and also very honest. But it didn't, you know, it just, you know, it wasn't like there's no there. There there was it wasn't resolved. Right. Right. Uh, Leanne, you want to give us a, a spirited defense of the piece? Um, so I, I don't necessarily know if it will be a defense, but I have questions. I think, um, you know, you describing like when you went, Nancy, how, um, it was very, very cold and everything was, you know, frozen and suspended. And, you know, when we saw it, it was very, very cold, but not as cold. Things were moving very slowly, um, you know, and I think, you know, she's a new artist to me. I didn't know anything about her work. So mm-hmm. after seeing this um, and sort of poking around on um, her site and sort of looking at things again, I think I was more drawn to the notion of 
um, you know, she she says that she uses sculpt, sculpture as sort of a response, and she's very mm -hmm. interested in um, the flow of information, how we receive information, those kinds of things. And so that I think that made sense for me, or it made sense for my frustration mm -hmm. when I saw this work because. You know, I think she also makes a lot of site-specific things. So obviously, I think this pool was, you know, made very much for Thanks, the chimney yeah. space. You know, and she's using images and you know, I don't know, pop cultural references that are specific to Iran. But I couldn't <coughs> access them. I, I honestly, I would have really liked to step in the middle and sort of take a closer look at um, many of those things because there was so much. Mm. And um, I, I just felt like, you know, I only, I only got a, just a tiny little snippet of all of the things mm. that were there. And, um, you know, I, I was there at one of the moments when the printer was um, printing images from a video that's looping on a little laptop that we can't really, like, we see where it is, but, you know, we mm. don't know where the projection is. So in some ways I thought, well, I guess it's successful if she um, wants to make a point about um, her being in control of the flow of information, how it's received, and um, the composition that um, of yours receiving it. But I think for me, I wonder what the possibilities would have been if there would have been more control for a reader, or a viewer, or mm. even um, a reader, as I almost said. But I think so, because we do have a lot to sort of read and understand and interpret in this installation. And so I wonder if um, if her hand were perhaps a little bit looser, mm -hmm. what the experience would have been like to see that work, even if I couldn't step in the middle and look at all of the, the things mm -hmm. that were there. That's funny, you say um, her hand being looser, but you, you also, you know, the talk about the idea of an artist being interested in disseminating information um, and that's in the process of this work, but it isn't in any sort of received information to the viewer. I mean, mm -hmm. you could not yeah. really know what that received information or what that information was supposed to be. And that, what I think you brought out, that you wanted, you felt like I just can, you know, I want a little, I want to know this somehow. And in fact, it sort of pushed me away a little so that I had to view it formally. Mm. Because I was not getting some of that information that I felt like I was supposed to be getting. And she, you know, I think she's, now I'm sort of connecting the dots. I think that's something that she's interested in because the, the video I described, and there was another one on her website um, that involved um, footage that was mostly of calamities, um, seemed to be stock footage or you know stuff that she pulled off the internet but some of it may have been original and she progressively covered the screen um with you know sort of clay that then she poked these little viewing apertures in um and she did the same thing with the other video where she sort of blocked the center of the screen with um her own it looked like her own images and, and also you know repurposed images. So, you know, there's something about concealment that's going on. You know, maybe she was happy that it, you know, was mm. frozen and, you know, or... Well, frozen or not, I think we, we or, just have to assume that. Yeah. I, I was, I, I always assume that if, if I can't see and understand the printed material that is that nonetheless has a formal quality within the installation that I assume that to be intentional or, mm -hmm. or I can see enough of it to know that it's the kind of material that might relate to 
um, Iranian cultural and political site websites. Um, I find myself attending much more closely to the the structure um, um, and the the apparatus and the mechanics. And um, I think the best bit that I got was from the the ladder. Um, it had been cast like a sort of Doris Salcedo, um, and so it was a ladder, but it was abstracted from its ladderness or or set into um, it was set, uh, and and the printer didn't work while I was there, but I could I can imagine just from the way that the uh, pieces of paper were stuck on the slide going down that it was it was a very glacial process, <laughs> um, and and um, I I I took that to be some if not intentional at least poetic uh, or certainly a, a poetic um, fact and also the the low techness of um, I mean. We we all live with the ubiquity of uh, um, even if we have turned, tried to turn our back on it of Instagram and Twitter and what have you um, that in fact this is a very uh, in its rareification this is a very literally as well and but also culturally slowed down um, uh, response to our bizarre and uh, extreme visual cultural moment. And not to exoticize, because I mean, of course, she's centrally concerned with the exotic and not being exotic. So therefore, not to exoticize her own anti-exotic contribution. Um, it, it seemed that by having a kind of reflective pool um, that, that obviously draws, that, that seems to some extent to draw on um, Iranian or perhaps Islamic um, architectural motifs um, and structures. It seemed uh, it seemed that there is something quite suggestive and specific about what she's doing. Don't ask me to say quite exactly what. <laughs> I haven't even researched properly how to pronounce the poor lady's name. But um, I think um, Chile, in many respects, as the work was. Um, there's there's grounds for optimism to see what she does next. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, audience, uh, Rebecca Quaitman and Sharazad Changlavai. Um, let's uh, let's. We've got some roving mics coming around. There's one on each side, I think. Um, and uh, we'll take comments in any order that they come. And um, uh, one of the quirks of the review panel is that uh, often at the events like this, you get beaten up. Uh, by the moderator if uh, you're making some kind of statement and you haven't asked us a question. Uh, we prefer statements to questions. So um, if you've got a question, try to make it into a statement. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a lot of thoughts on, on Rebecca Quaitman. Yes. Uh, I think is, uh, is this one on? Yeah. Yes. yeah okay. I think as unpopular as this comment might be, uh, it's very important to understand that Rebecca Quaitman comes from an artist's family, and that uh, her father, Harvey, who I knew briefly, uh, was very much of an intellectual. And he always seemed to come out on top with the art itself. And I mention that in relation to Nancy's comment because I think that there's an interesting parallel there. Now, the second thing that I think is more important 
is in this installation via of Klimt. There is a conceptual dimension. Having written the first book on conceptual art in this country, I can say that. Uh, there is a conceptual dimension that is important in terms of the organization. I wouldn't use the word program. I don't think that's correct. But there is a kind of system, maybe, that's at work. And I think that that systemization is what she is pulling out of off Klimt. I think that uh, the mysticism, the spirituality, the feminism, and the aesthetics are all dimensions that she has dealt with in a brilliant way. And I would say that it's important not to confuse formalism with conceptualism. One of the important aspects of conceptualism at the time that it was born in the late 60s was to get around this formalist idea and to really understand this system in terms of having potentials for art that previously had not been addressed. But I think that in the case of Quaitman, she heroically pulls these characteristics off that I just mentioned and makes an incredible statement. Okay, thank you. Um, any, anyone want to give, give some account of some, some visceral experience they had or, or some, um, some way in which Quaitman sent them back to, to Afklimt or Afklimt sent them hurtling towards um, Quaitman? It would be fascinating to hear that. Um, I'll be honest, it would be fascinating to hear anything. Is there um, is, is there uh, Can we... It's funny, isn't it? Yes, thank you. I guess I'm speaking as an artist, and when I saw the Quaitman work, I saw it from the beginning, from the bottom to up. And uh, the, the thing that struck me was the connections that the artists make in surrounding them and trying to develop like visual vocabulary and trying to make sense of the world. And it seemed obvious how Av Klipman was doing, dealing with the, like the chaos of the world and the changing, uh, changing scientific discoveries and all these uh, like dramatic changes of the turn of the century and kind of the parallel in Quaitman's work where the world is changing and then still dealing with the, uh, the visual vocabulary, how to connect with the world in a formalistic way and how to develop that word. So that I saw that connection and that, that really made me think about the, how the artists are connected. So that's my kind of a visceral reaction as an artist. Thank you. <coughs> Okay, well, um, when we take our second round of discussion and questions, those of you who have the profound regret that will strike you in about 20 seconds' time that you didn't <laughs> <laughs> say anything about Quaitman or uh, uh, Changlavari, uh, we're going to bend the rules and let you say it in the second half instead. Can, can, I, can I just add, say yes. one thing? Because in relation to thinking formally as opposed to thinking conceptually, I think one of the things in Quaitman's work that struck me, you'll tell me if I'm wrong because I know your book but I haven't read it in a while, um, is that in, in Quaitman's work, conceptually, what I thought it did very successfully is that you could look at the work and the questions that she was positing 
were very clear. In other words, the idea did, you know, I was saying before, and I think Nancy and I both agreed, that the work had a very, had a strong visual formal beauty often, but it also, you could look at it and you would understand what the investigation was in that particular painting or in that group of paintings that I think then spoke more to the idea. Right, did that make sense? Yeah. Jonathan, nice to see you up on stage. I haven't seen you for about a year or so, I think, something like that, anyway. Uh, yes, uh, I, I have to say that formalism is in opposition to conceptualism, okay? Uh, I emphasize the ism because they really have two different tracks. You know, the, the experiential dimension of enjoying something aesthetically or visual is something else, okay? And I think that's essentially what you're talking about. And one of the points that I tried to make in terms of Quaitman's work, this piece in particular, is that she, I use the word aesthetics that she brings into the work, which is not really what the, uh, the original conceptualists were interested in. Uh, but I think from a post-conceptual point of view, which comes a little bit later, and there is such a movement largely coming out of John Baldessari in, uh, in uh, Valencia, California, that I think that there is a kind of aesthetic that re-enters conceptual art, not from the origin, but from another point of view. And I think that that also, interestingly enough, gives way to a certain kind of feminism. I'm not sure that the connection is necessarily the same, but the point is a lot happens to conceptualism in the 70s that was not there in the 60s. That's, that's how I would answer you. And I, you know, I think, I mean, you brought up her father Harvey Quaitman, you know, who she, of course, openly acknowledges as a source along with David von Schlegel and her mother, Susan Howe. And, uh, you know, she, that's one of the wonderful things about her practices that, you know, she makes no bones about, you know, the wide range of resources that um, she has available to her. But she also has um, the resources of other, you know, sort of hybrid conceptual formalists that she also acknowledges, like Dan Graham, or, you know, I've been thinking about um, Bob Ryman, who I would call, uh, you know, a conceptual formalist. I mean, he really, you know, sort of had a foot in both worlds. So I think that is, and I think you're saying that, Robert, that that's one of the things that she does is, is bring these two seemingly incompatible things together. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I would also resist um, delving too much into the specifics of what formalism and conceptualism meant when, in a decade when Quaitman was no more than nine years old. Mm -hmm. However much um, uh, her she's she's conscious of and in de uh, her debts uh, to her her forebears, um, uh, she's. Um, there's been a lot of art that has been conceptual with either a small or a big C in the last uh, four or five decades. And um, I think that um, a lot of both practitioners and critics and the general public often get confused between, and perhaps are even supposed to get confused between, art which has a lot of content, uh, intellectual content, um, art which has a kind of serial programmatic um, um, uh, agenda, um, art that um, can only function and, and, and makes a virtue of only being able to function uh, within a certain context and within relation to other ideas. Um, 
without necessarily having to go right back to Joseph Kossuth or John Baldessari or, or, or sort of beat a drum for a certain kind of uh, almost ideological attachment to conceptual art. So I think perhaps Quaitman herself, by making work that has a kind of almost retro feel to it, because uh, I've always liked but also been a tiny bit suspicious of the, the very systems art 60s, 70s look of Quaitman. Um, there's almost a, a nostalgia for a kind of dry way of working, um, but done in a kind of wet way that's um, been, been sort of her, her charm in a way and her intrigue, uh, maybe actually precisely because of both her way of thinking and her way of producing, um, we're sent down this uh, rabbit hole of um, um, where she stands in relation to historic conceptual art. But anyway, um, I think we're ready for part two, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you uh, very much. Let's have a look, and thank you, Robert Morgan, for that great contribution. Uh, Robert was on our panel um, last season. Let's have a look now at video number two. Brenda Goodman's first solo show with Sycamore Jenkins, In a Lighter Place, marks a high point in the long career of an artist for whom passionate support from fellow practitioners hasn't previously met with corresponding career success. Although she has always been ambitious in her artistic intentions, the move to Chelsea seems to be matched by an increase in scale. Possibility of age 2018 is at 12 feet wide, her largest work to date. But there's also an extensive series of drawings on view measuring six by eight inches. John Yao, writing in Hyperallergic, notes that, quote, since she first began exhibiting in 1973, she has moved between abstraction and figuration, always rooting her work in the body and what it feels like to be inside her skin. He considers her extensive series of self-portraits concluded in 2011 to be one of the most powerful and disturbing achievements of portraiture in modern art. Even within an abstract idiom, the body is never far from the scratched and battered surface. In an interview with Dana Schutz for the New York Times on the eve of her present show, her third with Petzl, Ted Luce notes the title of one new piece on view, Painting in an Earthquake which he relates to the art world earthquake she lived through and the tremors from it that are still being felt. He's referring to the controversy surrounding her Emmett Till painting, Open Casket. It might seem that Schutz is very much back to business as usual in this show, titled Imagine Me and You. In images replete with her trademark existential unease, the dramatist person I transform into monsters as they respond to life's quirks and tribulations, which can include delivering a TED talk and working out on a treadmill. According to the artist, however, she has internalized the viewpoints of her protesters, even when making new work. I've had so many conversations with people who were upset by the painting, she tells Luce, that she has included them in my imagined audience when I'm painting. 
it's good those voices were heard. One departure in this show, which is entirely of works from 2018, is that she's exhibiting sculpture for the first time with a group of five figurative bronzes. So two very painterly painters, one in an abstract idiom, one in a figurative idiom, um, uh, which um, may very well provide a good opportunity to say once for all we can ignore the categories of abstract and figurative. Um, but it seems it's very hard for us to get away from them, um, much as we try, or some of us try. Um, but Brenda Goodman is an interesting case in, well, but by no means a unique case of, a, of an artist who does um, go back and forth somewhat between um, overt figuration and uh, explicit abstraction. Made more interesting, I think, by uh, virtue of the fact, uh, Nancy, that um, her abstraction um, is, <coughs> is very rooted in a history of abstraction. It seems there's a lot of um, quite learned echoes of um, an early and mid-20th century um, abs abstraction, uh, more actually mid-century, that's not necessarily the the canonical major breakthrough Mondrian Kandinsky, but often more a kind of salon abstraction or a um, long forgotten, overlooked, uh, neglected abstraction. Um, what, do you do, what do you feel her attachment to abstraction really tells us about her? Do, um, do, do, what do you feel, um, what do you, do, 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 you get a, do we get a sense from her work of what particularly motivates an attachment to um, historic possibilities within abstract art? Um, that's an interesting question because I've, I've been thinking of, of her work as, as so um, really rooted in real-time experience and, and particularly um, this new work where um, she's using the same sort of linear um, scaffolding those cursive marks, but doing it with the linoleum, you know, these are all paintings on wood. She's been painting on wood for, I think, since the early 1990s, 91. Um, but using um, a, a, car a carving tool, linoleum block cutter for the, for the paintings on wood, and I think an ice pick, which is really hard to picture, um, for the paintings on paper, that's what an article of an essay that Tom Michelli wrote um, said. Anyway, um, you know, it, it seems so, I mean, I can think of, of abstractions to whom her work uh, can be, to which her work can be compared, like um, Gary Steffen or Tom Noskowski, um, two painters that come to mind. But, I, you know, I think what's idiosyncratic about her work is, I mean, this is true of, of any good painter, is what's most compelling about it. And I think it is just that ability to toggle back and forth between figurative and abstract work in a way that makes you um, really see that there's no difference whatsoever. And, you know, I think part of that is that we do have a sense, I don't want to say, you know, that the surface is tortured, but, uh, you know, some of the self-portraits or, you know, there's a series of paintings called sciatica, 
they're about pain, surprisingly. Um, and, you know, there's, there is this, you know, painfulness of the surface that is in this wonderful poise, I think, with the delightfulness of, you know, her palette and her um, form language and, you know, the scale shifts within um, the um, linear um, color and shape things that mm. she mm. does on canvas. Yeah, it's the the the, the balance the the the, uh, uh, the uh, it, it's it's odd, strike, striking to me that on the one hand these are works that seem deeply personal and to come out of um, an, an artist's direct actual experience and at the same time have rather a historical look um, and I wonder if I, it's just I've been looking at too much historical work maybe I'm I should shed that in some way but. Um, uh, Leanne, do you know what I mean by that kind of, some of those textures, some of those hues seem very 40s, 50s abstraction, um, or there, there seems to be a recourse to a kind of, sometimes an, an imagery coming out of Mad Magazine, a kind of buffoonery um, um, language that, uh, as Nancy has already mentioned, uh, uh, we're quite familiar with from Thomas Noskowski, although of course they're roughly the same age, so um, and and her career goes right back to the seventies as well. So um, I'm not going to commit the sexist faux pas of assuming that the better known gentleman was there first, but um, it, it is a familiar territory, and I wonder what's what's really going on. Uh, any thoughts on that? Um, it's making me think about the conversation that we had pre. Um, pre this panel, when we were just sitting back and talking about music and how um, there was, um, you know, in earlier generations, there was um, sort of a collective moment. So people sort of were able to listen to the same things or consume, mm -hmm. experience the same kinds of things, which is very different from today because we consume and experience music in this example differently. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, she has been producing and creating things since the early 1970s. So then before that, you know, what she would have been um, exposed to or what she would have been learning. And so in some ways it makes me think, you know, is she just kind of carrying through sort of the, you know, the visual culture in a sense of like her generation or when she was, you know, sort of growing up in a sense, you know, she also continues to, um, you know, scar, um, the works and um, I think that's also very poignant and effective um, you know considering the self-portraits um, that she made before this sort of major new body of work there's still that kind of carryover of you know these aren't figures but in some ways they're still sort of um, functioning in that same way because you know she's still you know, despite their size, um, despite that there aren't any, vis um, you know, discernible figures in these works, you know, she's still kind of thinking about the surface as a skin and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that she's been doing for a while. So I don't know, it's just sort of me riffing, thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. maybe this is just um, something that she has carried forward because that was sort of the, sort of what she grew up with in a sense, visually, and it's really um, had an impact on her. Jonathan, nature, nurture, what's going on here? Well, I have a lot to say about Brenda Goodman, and I should preface that by saying that we were 
in a gallery together when we were 12, and we were in a theater group that was run by Marsha Tucker, and I hope everybody knows who Marsha Tucker was, because I was in the new museum, and the girl getting my ticket didn't know who Marsha Tucker was, and she was in <laughs> Marsha Tucker Hall. Nevertheless, um, Brenda Goodman, one of the things that I think she's always done in the work is create these worlds. You know, they're very... I was very struck by them in this show, that those worlds where you are, and she makes you, they become very solid. So that though they're kind of sliding between biomorphic sort of representation in a certain way, or biomorphism, and then sort of abstraction in this other sense, I, you know, the work to me feels a combination that is really specific, you know, like it's, it's um, you know, all that scratching and scarification is like a web that holds it formally so that all these things can slip and slide, but they stay in their place. Um, I, I, you know, I, but I'm, I remember also in the 70s that Brenda Goodman made these little maquettes. Do you remember them? And they were little worlds. They mm -hmm. were these little surrealist worlds that you could enter. They were fantastic, you know. And so I also feel totally not, you know, not in an objective place to talk about mm -hmm. this work because I love this work and I have seen it grow from the 70s. And though she has been exploring things that may be um, part of what, let's say, even came out of, you know, European surrealism coming to mm. this country and then banging against this and this and this. I think she's always had a very unique sensibility, you know, that, it, you know, if you'd seen the work in the 70s also, you would, I think, would say, this work had nothing to do with the 70s at mm -hmm. the time. It really did not. She was doing something very idiosyncratic for her time. And in a certain way, I, when I w saw this show, I felt, ah, the time has caught up to Brenda Goodman, mm. as opposed to the reverse, you know? Right. So I think they're, you know, I mean, incredibly rich, strange, and wonderful paintings. Um, so I was, you know, I, I, it's funny that... It, one can talk about all the references to abstraction and the body and the yes. figure and the things that Brenda Goodman's been interested in. But this work, and this work did feel very mature to me in a not mm. old fart sense, you know, in a good right. way, you know, in a really alive way that it's, it feels like it's going to keep going, you know. And what about the new, the new scale? Is that, is that something quite significant to those of you who is followed it, her work? For is it that time? much bigger? I mean, you, well, you're so familiar with the work. Is that much bigger than previous um, I works? I mean, just the, the painting that you talked about, that very big painting. There's the but one I think, big one. You know, in the same way that Brenda Goodman doesn't say, you know, I'm going to give you abstraction or I'm going to give you figuration. Scale is, you know, I mean, she had these those beautiful little uh, watercolors uh, oil yes. on paper yeah. that were yeah. also scarified and stratified in the same way as the big paintings. And oddly enough, I kept thinking if we took a photograph of the little one, mm -hmm. if there was no scale in it, because they're very big, those little paintings, you know, mm. would we know the scale? And yet I do think scale is always very important. But I think for somebody like Brenda Goodman, who is sort of bouncing this world between abstraction, representation, how we think about it, she's also playing with scale in this way that makes us, as a viewer, very conscious of it, and then you lose it. Do you know, do you know what I'm, I mean mm -hmm. there? 
I, I love your description of, of, of her work always creating a world that seems, you know, just right to me. And um, and there were certainly even, uh, you know, in the paintings on wood, there there were there was a huge range in scale. And you know, something I, I, I want to sort of meant to say and forgot um, is that there's, you know, even in this abstract work, there's a very powerful sense of narrative that you, you know, that you see, you know, there are hints of it in some of the titles um, that could also be titles for figurative paintings. But, you know, principally, you see it in the relationship between the forms and they're, you know, they're really speaking forms. They talk to each other. They're, you know, they're agitated. They, you know, have like conflicts with each other. And, um you know, even in in a single painting, there are so many different kinds of mark making and paint application, and and you know there are smooth surfaces that are shadowed and seem to suggest that they have volume, and then there are things that are like you know stained glass windows or Harlequin kinds of patterning, or you know the pattern gets very small. You know, there's just this huge. It's you know it's all you know it's narrative. Sometimes it's kind of epic, and you know I think that also is very. Um, seems to be very much her her mode her she mode. doesn't hold anything back it's you know if she's making self portraits you get the whole Brenda Goodman but it, they are, they are very narrative i mean i think that's that's key and the, the fact that we're identifying um biomorphic uh, surrealism as um a point of reference i think is is very telling because um Actually, the, the, the striations, those whirls of line, immediately put me in mind of that painting by Max Ernst, La Planète Affolée, where, uh, which is from the, the, during the Second World War and the, the, you know, the world gone mad. And um, it, it's, it, it is interesting to marshal languages such as abstraction um, and... Uh, and, and also the kind of cartooning quality that's, that I, I think is kind of more, uh, very evident in her more figurative work, uh, that um, um, she's, got a, she's got a tale to tell and, and she's making pictures to get those, those stories and those points across. Um, I, I think maybe a great deal of her appeal um, is actually precisely in uh, that, that she's a... A picture maker, an imagist, um, and um, um, I think it, it relates in a way to a kind of Chicago-ish um, aesthetic. I wonder if our guest from Chicago agrees with that. But it seems um, she's from Detroit, isn't Detroit. she? Detroit. So there is. Um, uh, I don't want to, you know, stereotype, but it does seem to be um, um, not the being. Well, it, there does seem to be. Um, a real connection. I don't know whether it's historic or just uh, circumstantial with um, imagism. What I'm saying is, she's not a pure. <laughs> she's not a very pure painter, and 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 people will like that. Some those who like her will like her for it. And those who don't have a problem with it, she is anything but a purist. Is that fair? I guess my um, my hesitation is that. Um, you know, when I, I guess when I think of um, images, you know, um, there was a big uh, Harry Hoof show at the Art Institute not um, yes. last summer. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that was really important to sort of bring out in that in terms of, you know, imagists was that they were um, they're just so dedicated to 
craft and technique that was very important to them. And so I think in comparing maybe them loosely to Brenda Goodman, mm-hmm. that that portion of it makes sense to me because the, I think mm-hmm. the focus on um, technique and craft. Um, I meant more the goofiness, the uh, vulgarity, the brashness, the um, um, the kind of let me tell you a story and do you get it quality that that I think that you know there's there's a little bit of I think there's a lot of I think there's there's, there's something um, sorry I'm just blanking all the names of all the Chicago of the images but um, uh, Jim Nutt that seems to be in her self portraiture there's a sort of Jim Nutt like quality right I think that was more evident in the earlier paintings and what what's remained from that is that that incising in that line is a kind of drawing element Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. also exists in her work that has carried through and that she um i and i think also that you know the slightly cartooning thing that's become i think strong stronger and more um obvious in the paintings now you know in terms of a kind of cartoon storytelling but you know what you said before about whether you love it or you hate it I would say it's partially why an artist like Brenda Goodman has had a difficult time. Right. You know, right. Because she she's slightly polarizing. If you decide that you don't like this or you want this, she's not going to give you one or the other. You know, she's Mm. and and they are it's it's interesting to see them now in, you know, cinemascope in a fancy gallery to see because I watched this work for such a long time. And of course, things get contextualized. So the paintings, gee, they look much more beautiful. But I've always loved them in their roughness and their crudeness. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I do think that she has affinity to some of the Chicago, Detroit, to those things that she came out of. Mm. But I think she's developed her own language of that, you know, quite um, apart from it, though there, you can find them there, mm. you know. Mm. I think. A more direct connection would be to somebody like Elizabeth Murray, who, of course, was influenced by, you know, but that, and I, you know, I, I also think that some of the connections, David, that you were making to, um, you know, European modernism and, and particularly to surrealism, which Jonathan, you brought up, um, are important. So, you know, but she does these funny things with them. So, you know, that, you know, very Andre Misson, you know, automatic yes. line, she's hmm. now, you know, I mean, that must take a lot of like you know uh, elbow power to dig into wood with a linoleum cutter i mean that's you know you can't it looks like something that's done very quickly but it can't be mm. and um i don't think um i know this is an audience full of artists um but you know i think that's part of the appeal too is you know sort of going against the you know, going against the expectation of whatever the format or the, you know, the received language is. Right, right. Fantastic. Well, um, let's move on to to Dana Schutz, um, another artist with a good, strong mid- Midwestern connection and also uh, with um, um, uh, an urge to tell us stories. Um, there's, there's, there's a tremendous uh, wit in this show, I thought. Um, um, but also 
gravitas and 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 she's an artist who can uh juggle those two very deftly i always find um i think i've started each round with somebody so it's just um who wants to go first on dana schutz <laughs> go on Nancy. So you don't have uh, you don't want to no, oh Take me, me, the odd, okay, odd man out who really shouldn't, I don't know. Um, you know, I think that there's so much to talk about in this, in this work that, you know, the crudeness, the bombastic quality that's all anchored and, and um, you know, she has a great talent in these paintings for uh, making everything hang together in a way that is remarkable to me, you know, I mean, and, and, and brought up, talk about somebody who brings up associations of other artists from mm. Gustin to George McNeil, which I wouldn't necessarily mm. think of, or Max Beckman at times, mm. um, um, political cartooning that becomes, you know, so painterly, uh, sexual pred predators, you know, and, you know, I mean, I kept thinking of all these weird things would come to my mind, you know, like um, Gustin meets Balthus or somebody meets this, you know, but because the work is so associative and so powerful in so many ways and seeing also, I'm doing the gamut here, but that the sculpture, you know, the paintings are, of course, skirting the edge of becoming sculptural because the paint becomes so physical mm. that then when you go into the sculpture, she, it's as if she's taken the reverse and her hand and the painterly quality of the sculpture mm. is there. Mm. So I thought that was kind of brilliant. You know, I'd like to see where the sculpture goes. Ultimately, the painting feels, you know, light years ahead of it in some ways, mm -hmm. though. I, I mean, because the sculpture also was both reminded me of de Kooning, but also of like early 20th century figuration and in mm. certain ways. Lipschitz or somebody? Yeah, yeah, yeah abso absolutely. So, um, but, you know, I, I kept coming back, you know, you'd be, one would be wowed by, you know, like the big group painting, for example, which is kind of a self-portrait. Yes, the mountain seems, group. The mountain yes. group. And, you know, you would come away with all of this, as you said, humor and wit and this little figure painting over here and then blobs of paint that, sit on the surface and then drag you into mm -hmm. something behind it, you know, but there's, again, I'm coming back to this thing that I guess dates me, but to see how an artist can take this incredible explosion of imagery and lock it together into mm. a structure that is quite tangible and real and, and, uh, I mean, you can't explode those paintings. They're doing no. their own explosion, but the more she ties them together, the more explosive they are without ex coming off the canvas. You know? Do any of you think it's significant um, that when she seemed to be on the brink of a kind of cubism in the last works we saw at the Whitney, not the open casket, but the others, the, the, the fight in the elevator, um, She's pulled, she's pulled back from that, hasn't she? We, we, we're back with uh, a kind of proscenium arch and either a, a, a very ambitious group uh, that, that coheres or uh, one or two figures that compel the, the gestalt. Um, do you think there's a kind of going back to basics a little bit in this show? I don't think so. 
I think for me, I think the only real, you know, you brought up the um, the painting of the the famous couple in the elevator. Yes. Um, you know, I think, you know, like she's done those sorts of things before, of like, you know, she paints famous or makes reference to famous or well-known people as opposed to anonymous um, or perhaps made up characters. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think that that's a going back to basic sort of thing. It's still like, you know, she's creating scenes and they're filled with figures or characters of people. Um, and I think for me, the color in them makes them really exciting, but there's still something that's kind of, um, like I, I can't, I actually can't tell if she is being humorous or if she's being, you know, sarcastic in these scenes. So I think voyeuristic is the wrong word, but that feels something um, like I can't tell what she's doing in, mm. in terms of, you know, mm. here's the scene, here are these people in these very vulnerable positions. So emotionally illegible. Yeah. You know, like it's it's fine. I think, you know, we can definitely feel the aggression, the anger, the ecstasy and joy and all of the range of emotions um, that I think she presents in mm. works. But there's something about it makes me feel uncomfortable because I can't tell you know, is she making fun of this character or these people, or is it sarcasm, or is it just, mm. is it neutral? Um, what does the bestiary in her work mean? What does this zoomorphic um, impetus? I, why, why, why do so many of her people become fish or monsters? <laughs> monsters, definitely. Um, I, so it, it looks like I'm the only person on the panel who really felt like the paintings were just a complete mess. Um, I, I, I mean, I... Okay, that's an exaggeration. They're, they're not all... <laughs> I just said that for effect. But... Um, you got our attention. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that they are a departure, um, not, a, not a radical departure from the work that, um, that came just before, but... Um, this, you know, what happens in a number of the paintings where she just loads up the brush and lets it rip, um, and every painting seems to be about, to me, seem to be about a certain kind of, you know, rage or um, anxiety or both of those things together. And of course, you know, we all have plenty of reasons to see that kind of emotion swirling through the work. Um, I do think here at scale is an issue, and I think the paintings, the big paintings are too big, with the exception maybe of, of the mountain painting. Um, and the ones that to me seem most coherent um, were the ones that had one or two figures, and the paint was more, um, the paint was more controlled in the way that, you know, when she first began painting, which wasn't that long ago, um, she had a, a way of handling the paint that um, was both precise and deeply weird. Mm. And um, that was true of the imagery as well, that you just didn't know where she dreamed up these subjects um, and the perspectives that they were viewing the world from. And now, you know, there's a lot of direct confrontation with the viewer. And um, there's a lot of painting about painting, obviously. And um, I actually thought the, the most satisfying work was the sculpture in a way. And I, I think I felt that way because it seemed that she wasn't, 
you know, she didn't have anything to prove about her paint handling ability or her skill as a colorist or, you know, the critical responses. But these are her best paintings ever, and she can do anything, and she's a brilliant colorist. And, you know, I, look, I looked at these paintings and thought, there's no control of the color at all. It's, so, anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> so you did feel that they were somewhat out of control. See, because I thought oh. what she did was that they seemed that, but that mm. they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's all. always seemed to me a, a painter who's control. incapable of not being in control. I mean, it's um, her 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 goofiness is um, uh, an insistent pose, but uh, she's she's always had this like ability to command, especially in multi-figure paintings, which is uh, anyone who whether you yeah. make paintings or don't, you know that that's that's uh, like a chief challenge. And then to get that mountain group, as in the past, she had that ship of fools mm -hmm. and, um, you, you know, to, to, to pack a canvas, whatever size the canvas is, because the, the scale follows the size anyway. So to pack the composition with that many uh, discrete personalities and have them uh, uh, inter, um, interpolate, uh, in in a way that's um, nutty but convincing at the same time is a bravura act, and oh, it seems to me the color is really she's she's got it with the color. I mean, a lot a lot of it was a very Guston meets Baselitz kind of meatiness. It almost felt uh, like a vegetarian. I shouldn't be looking at these paintings; they're so meaty. <laughs> but um, uh, there there there's some um, I'm. I'm kind of very surprised um, because, to me, uh, Brend, uh, your your exaltation of the craft of Brenda Goodman, I was sitting politely and just saying, "Okay, I'm obviously visually illiterate. I haven't noticed that." Because Brenda um, is a is a is a personality I like and a, a career that I approve of, but when I'm with each individual painting. Uh, sometimes it's a struggle to reconcile the uh, the awkwardness and the, um, mm -hmm. uh, the the sort of lostness, the, the decenteredness of what she's up to. Uh, with Dana Schutz, it's like the polar opposite. Um, uh, she's doing all she possibly can to be as vulgar and goofy and silly as she can, and she's she's got this Midas touch. She's incapable of not producing um, uh, painterly finesse. But I'm kind of with you there, but go on, Leanne. Uh, well, yeah. I was just going to ask, but don't you think it's too much, you know? Oh, too much is never enough. I mean, but, in, but in the sense of, I don't know, I just think because she, because her subject is figures and they're in these yes. scenes and situations, hmm. she, she, it feels she's, like it's overdone. Or like, I don't know... Yeah. Like, I can't tell what she's, you know, how am I supposed... What? She is addicted to overload, and and that's why she got into so much trouble with the... not Beyond the politics of uh, open casket, I, I, I was the the painterly excess. Uh, she's a... She is a, a, an addict of excess. Well, I was with her up until the... You know, I was with her all the way up until this show. And, you know, all the things that you said about her ability to, um, you know, construct a composition with 
way too many, you know, by conventional standards figures in, you know, in, in one space or, you know, to, to come up with, you know, rooms full of of um, people who are eating their own limbs. I mean, you know, she's done some pretty outrageous things mm. and, and remarkably um, pulled them off or, you know, poke holes through the canvas. And, you know, I was with her on all those um, moves, but to just, you know, I think the language of letting the drips show and, you know, just wiping the, you know, brush on a canvas and letting that stay there. You know, I mean, there seemed to be a number of moves that were like, you know, I think she's got a very dedicated audience that really trusts her. Right. And um, gives her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and, you know, I can see why, but I, I don't think it's, I just don't think it's justified with these paintings. So did you find that, Nancy, that, that those brush marks, let's say that where she's smacking her brush on the thing, were, did not feel intentional? Because I was also coming back to what Leanne said about not knowing how to feel about the paintings. I don't feel there's any irony in those paintings at all. I mean, they feel no. very like honest yeah. to me, mm. you know, in their kind of narrative bombast. You know, they don't, um, I didn't, I would never question that because they don't feel like ironic paintings. I wouldn't like them if they were ironic paintings, I don't think. Mm. But so I, you didn't feel the intentionality of the, of the way those paintings are I didn't feel the together? control. And really? honestly, I, I, some of them felt really hasty. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that can happen. It's, you know, there's a lot of demand for production. I, you know, I, I'm not like tempted to really go down this road, but she's covering a, co hmm. covering a lot of real estate, you know, canvas wise. And um, some of them just didn't seem up to her own standard to me. Up to her own standard of taking risk and going too far, or up to her own standard um, of of succeeding within whatever terms she's using. The second. Ah, okay. Of you know, just finishing. Oh, right, that's amazing. I, how we can see them so differently. I I could see, although I wouldn't agree with it, a critique that would say that by making more simplified compositions, restricting to one or two figures and not playing, taking such liberties with space as the more cubist or the punctured works are concerned. I could see somebody saying that that's um, a certain kind of intellectual laziness, but I, I wouldn't agree with it. But to say, oh, they don't work because they're messy, seems odd for someone who's been way messier <laughs> and whose works actually, as I say, it's just, they just seem like magic the way they uh, just... Behave, the paint behaves, each brushstroke's actually in the right place. See, I, I feel that, but I can't, but I feel also like insecure that, that you know, you folks have to know better because I've been outside of this. But uh, I kept, don't, don't but I did it. keep feeling that I was amazed to me by the amount of control in these paintings that felt mm. out of control on first view. And I was brought back to someone like George McNeil, who's a sort of minor figure and how, you know, the sort of ugliness in his figures, mm. of, particularly of women and uh that are really abrasive, but also, and I still think she is using a kind of cubist grid underneath. Everything mm. is pushed mm -hmm. up to the surface and smashed on there mm. and often framed in a certain way, you know, so. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know. 
I mean, there so, are other points of reference we can use for her besides, you know, Augustine and and I mean, I I I think you've you've made some interesting connections. But if I, you know, if you think about a painter like Nicole Eisenman, who you know yes. does some of the same, you know, who makes also makes sculpture, right, and you know violates some of the same rules, and you know, I think she pushes things pretty far sometimes, yeah. and you know, in terms of. Um, the way the, the subjects address us and um, the very complicated social situations that she presents us with and shifts in, you know, in factor and scale within a single blah, blah, you know, the whole. And I think that's a useful comparison. And I think um, right. there's a lot of risk-taking, you know, Thank by both parties. Yes. Um, good, very anyway. good point. Thank you very much indeed. Um, panel, I'd like to bring in the audience because um, I feel that we would, uh, that there are a lot of people here who've got, who are invested in um, these two exhibitions, and I'd love to uh, give you guys a chance to, to share what you have to say. Um, so do we have our mics back? Great. Both turned on. Fantastic. Um, Dana Schutz, Brenda Goodman, we'll take it in either order. Um, so uh, I'd love to hear from someone. Yes, as a hand at the back. Yes. Uh, well, thank you again for the presentation. With the comment on you feel that this painter is out of control, it just popped into my head then Picasso's Guernica is out of control. Magritte is out of control. Maurice Sendak is out of control. I'm just wondering where that comment goes. And this person may have stretched her own canvas and had a, a preconception about what she wanted to put there. So I'm not sure where the out of control thing comes from. Okay, right. And right. uh, now right at the front. But I'm going to let you find. Yes, there's the lady right in the front. Uh, thanks. It's a really very great talk. I have to say, when I went to see uh, Dana Schutz, it just made me so angry. I felt they were really political. I I doubt. I thought there was so much money there. There was a, so many bronze sculptures done in one year. They, to me, they looked illustrational rather than form. And, but the paintings were just so political. I kept thinking about Trump and stuff. Maybe, maybe I'm projecting, I don't know. But uh, they just, I guess, anger and apocalyptic and birds like that. And I just got more and more wound up. And I was there for half an hour. And then I sort of ran out. I just went up to see the, you know, the, the black model where I could look at Matisse's. But, um, I don't know, and I, 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 the, the, I guess that's what I thought. And I wondered if she had a workshop. I heard her talk once, and I thought she had somebody else putting on that two inches of thick of paint on those ten-foot canvases. I, I just, I just, it just, I just didn't feel sympathetic. <laughs> okay, well, that's. Uh, um, yes. Hi, I have just a simple comment on Brenda Goodman, and I really appreciated the, the thinking around imagism. And um, it reminded me that she, for me, less than the Chicago thing, I'm not sure I can really make those associations as effectively as some of you might, but to me, the, the uh, artists like Baziotes and, and Wilfredo Lam and, and uh, Roberto Mata popped to mind, not that they were direct influences, but they were influential um, abstractionists coming out of surrealism in various parts of the planet. 
and all a little bit pre-Greenberg's obsession with surface and materiality that dominated New York painting uh, from the mid-50s on. So Brenda Goodman comes as a delightful kind of uh, return to mm. that kind of biomorphic abstraction that was very strong in the, in the 40s in a variety of places. And I just appreciate that very much in her work. Thank you very much. I think that's a very astute comment because I, I, it's actually, I hadn't thought of it quite in those terms, but it makes me realize that um, one of the disconcerting, well, one of the refreshing and disconcerting things about her is she's um, anti-iconic and, and that, that actually so much of the thrust of the New York school right through into, into minimal and post-minimal art um, is, is that it's, it's, it's always takes us into a singular and central uh, motif or idea. Um, and um, Goodman is a, an interesting mess in that uh, the surface <laughs> and the composition and the going back and forth, it's, um, it's, it's anti-iconic, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. More comments on either artist? Yes. Uh, thank you. Thanks. I just, um, just a comment. I think um, just looking, thinking about Brenda Goodman after we were just talking about Quaitman, I don't really know that Quaitman should be the last word on Off Clint. I think that in a way, Off Clint had both, both parts. There was an inwardness there that seems closer to Brenda Goodman. Hmm. Excellent, thank you. Hmm. I, I would, I would actually just like an add a coda to that comment and say that um, Amy Silman is also a big advocate of Af Clint, and there's a, a fascinating mm -hmm. uh, panel discussion that forms one of the essays in the uh, Guggenheim catalog, in which the creators talk to uh, Quaitman and several other people, including Silman. And Silman is very much in my mind when I was looking um, at Brenda Goodman. Yeah. So I think there's yeah. a Interesting for sure. connection there. For sure. Yes. I think we have room for uh, maybe one last comment. Somebody bursting to say something? Yes, sir. Uh, wait for the mic, if you would, because then we've got our um, glass of wine and chip waiting for us over the road. And I, uh, I wanted to say that it's uh, fascinating that, that uh, we're uh, bringing together, you know, and contrasting the motives and the gifts of... of uh, well, actually dealing with three women artists. I mean, I think that the, the uh, what do I say, the theoretical aspects uh, of, of Harvey Kreitman's daughter is a very, a very different universe than the two other artists that we've been concentrating on now. But one thing I wanted to say is that uh, Brenda has been, uh, uh, been a painter since she started beginning to draw at a neighborhood community place in her native Detroit, where for one year she, she was nothing. She comes from a very classical background, where for one year she was allowed to do nothing but hold either a pencil or a stick of charcoal in her hand and work from the still life that the mm -hmm. teacher had set up. So she had that kind of discipline, and she has worked uh, continuously. There's, uh, there's a, I think, Part of the strength of her work is that she's dealt with a lot of tragedies in her life. She comes from a, a broken family, uh, and uh, there was a long s s 
She did a whole series of paintings of her interacting with her mother while her mother died a long and painful death. So her work has a, it has a, uh, there may be the word cartoon was used, but to me there's nothing remotely cartoonish about her work. Uh, it, it, to me, it comes out of a, a, a desire. I mean, she, she's a ferocious desire to express herself as a painter. And it's very interesting that talking about someone who's painted for way more than 60 years and someone who's new, undeniably very talented, very ambitious, but she's been painting for what, you know, maybe five or six or so. I should know and I don't. But I think in, in dealing with the two of them, it's hard not not to focus on the fact that their backgrounds are, are uh, radically different. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's, let's swiftly wake our way to um, one Grand Army Plaza, both because they're waiting for us. Thank you. Thank you very much.